0: okay i'm excited uh, for our time together now if you'll uh, take your bible and open to the gospel of luke we're back in luke it's been a while a long while uh, but we're back in luke and uh, we've been taking luke in sections uh, or uh, stages i guess you could say uh, mostly because it's a long book luke it is the longest book in the new testament if you put it together uh, with the book of Acts it is uh, which is basically the sequel to Luke, Luke and Acts together are almost thirty percent of the New Testament. So uh, that means if I get through these books with you, uh, then uh, we're going to get through thirty percent of the New Testament which is which is huge. but it's going to take us a while, uh, not just because Luke is long, but also because it is thick. Uh, it's kind of amazing because it's it 's not difficult to understand uh, superficially. Uh, You can read it and you can get the idea but there is so much more if you just go a little deeper and to go deeper to understand what Luke is actually intending when he tells these stories. There's just so much we need to know that we can't go through it quickly. So as we do we're going to stop every once in a while and look at other things uh, like we just did as we talked about gospel culture uh, the past few months But we've looked at Luke 1 and 2 so far. That's where we were before the break, the introduction to Luke, where you uh, remember maybe that Luke does what you would expect him to do in an introduction. Uh, He introduces the gospel. He doesn't tell the whole gospel in the introduction, though he gives some hints. But you have to be patient when you're reading a story, uh, any story, but certainly a gospel. Luke starts by introducing the gospel and giving some of the keys to understanding what he's talking about and what makes it so significant. So for example, uh, from the very beginning, Luke says he's talking about what has been accomplished. That is his subject, Luke 1 verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he's comparing what he's writing to what others have written which he describes as a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, because that's how he views what happened with Jesus. It accomplished something, which tells us as we read Luke that we are not just reading a story about something that happened long ago. Uh, We are reading about events that did something in this world. Another word you could use for uh, the word accomplished is fulfilled, and uh, that word is helpful for understanding what Luke is talking about, actually, because according to Luke, these events didn't just happen. They fulfilled something that had been spoken about before. In other words, the events that he is writing about in this gospel are part of the accomplishment of a plan. And he makes clear what plan he's talking about in the next story he tells, uh, the one about the announcement of John the Baptist's birth, down there in verse 5 of chapter 1, because maybe you remember that he deliberately tells that story in a way that connects what happens in this gospel to the Old Testament, which is important because it tells us what we're looking for as we read this book. We have to let Luke set the agenda if we're going to benefit because we're not coming to these stories in this gospel trying to see whatever we want to see but specifically what luke wants us to see and luke is telling us from the beginning that what he wants us to see is that jesus really did fulfill the old testament which maybe seems obvious to us i know those of us who are christians but that's partly because we aren't actually as familiar with the Old Testament and the claims it's making about what God is doing through the Messiah, which is why we took a lot of time in the first couple chapters to, see, to help you see just how big the promises God is making about the salvation he's going to provide through Jesus really are, which is the theme, basically, of chapters 1 and 2. God made some big promises in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, about how he was going to provide salvation. And Luke is writing this gospel, the one that we're reading, to prove that what happened to Jesus is the fulfillment of what those promises we read about in the Old Testament were saying about how God is going to fix what's wrong in the world which you see right away, even just in the the way he tells the story about John the Baptist. Verses 5 through 25 of chapter 1. Because Luke is constantly making allusions throughout this gospel. This is important to know, even for understanding Luke. And some of the allusions that he makes are almost more like echoes, which just means there's something in the way he tells these stories that reminds you of an earlier story from the Old Testament which you need to know to be able to open up the significance of the story he's telling and one of the first big echoes he makes is to the story of abraham and sarah and abraham and sarah you remember in the old testament are key to the way god's going to save the world So you open up your Bible, Genesis 1 to 11, and you see right away that the world is in trouble and the world can't save itself. And so God makes a promise in Genesis about this individual who's going to come to save the world, to rescue the world. And you are looking for that individual, deliverer, that hero, as you're reading the Old Testament. And in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and makes clear that it is going to be through one of Abraham's and Sarah's descendants that he will reverse the curse. And so Luke, what he does as he opens up this gospel, is he almost forces you to think about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac in the way he tells this story about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And yet the twist is, there's a twist, the twist is that their child, John the Baptist, isn't even going to be the ultimate hero. Jesus is. And so it's like as you're reading Luke 1, as he introduces his gospel, you know that this book is, about, is going to be about salvation. And that salvation is going to be big because Abraham and Sarah. But just when you think it can't get bigger, it does. Because first, John is born to this old, barren couple. And that's like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, I'm saying, which again is the biggest birth in the Old Testament. And yet we see right away right after that that jesus in the next story is going to be born to a virgin which is how luke works he is pointing us back to the old testament and saying jesus is the fulfillment of a plan god made in the old testament which is huge luke's saying that and and making that clear while at the same time finding a way to emphasize that jesus is actually bigger and better than anything we've seen before and one way we know that is because an angel is literally sent by god from heaven to this little town in israel to tell this teenage girl named mary that she is going to have a son and that her son is going to be the eternal ruler of the universe and that was the second story the birth of jesus foretold a chapter 1, verse 26. And there, Luke wants us to know specifically that Jesus is going to be the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. And if you're not tracking because you don't know Davidic covenant, this is why we did those sermons before we started Luke. You can check those out. But again, in the second story, Luke is showing that Jesus is fulfilling the Davidic covenant. But just like the first story, there's a little extra twist and an important one because we've had some descendants of David before and they all failed. And so Luke makes clear that Jesus is a descendant of David. Yeah, but he's also more. And you remember this is the story where Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she identifies Jesus as her Lord and everywhere else that word Lord is used in chapters one and two, it means God. And so it's like Luke, as he introduces this gospel, is quickly connecting the dots right at the beginning, in the introduction. We're looking at this story about Jesus, and we're looking at what happened to Jesus because he is going to show us how Jesus accomplished something, specifically how he fulfilled the promises made in the Old Testament. Meaning what? That he's the seed of Abraham, so think reversal of the curse. And meaning that he's the descendant of David, meaning the ruler of the universe, and that he's Lord, meaning he's a unique descendant of David who can do what all the rest could not. And in case we're not familiar with why all that is so significant, Luke brings in some people to explain in the rest of chapter 1, starting with Mary, who unpacks what she's expecting God to do through Jesus. And you read it, verses 46 through 55 of chapter 1, and she is expecting... Basically, a complete reversal at every level of how things were for Israel, uh, spiritually, socially, economically. That's what we're talking about. And then Zechariah comes in, and he's important for us, especially because we're Gentiles, we're not Israel. And so maybe after listening to Mary, we're wondering what all this has to do with us. And so Zechariah, at the end of chapter 1, explains that this salvation for Israel is going to result in Israel fulfilling the role it was originally given by God, which was to bring blessing to the entire world. That's how he's picturing this in verses 66 through 80, what's going to happen with Jesus. And so we need to look at what happened with Jesus, the the things that took place, the events, because Luke is making a claim. It's so important to understand that. He is claiming that Jesus is the solution God promised in the Old Testament to the problems of the entire world. Abrahamic Covenant. And he's going to do that by fulfilling the Davidic covenant, defeating all his enemies, establishing peace in the world, and making every wrong right. Jesus is huge. Huge. You know, I was uh, somewhere recently, and uh, someone was telling me, all religions are the same, you know? Christianity, Islam. He actually said, only 5% difference, only 5% difference. But of course, they're not the same, not even close. We're talking 100% difference. Because Christianity is based on this announcement about what God is doing through Jesus. And if he is not doing that through Jesus, listen to me now, there is no Christianity. There is no good news. It's not about a feeling that you get. It's not about just an activity you do. Christianity is about something that God has done through Jesus. And if God has not done that through Jesus, there is no Christianity. So we really have to look closely at Jesus, especially because Jesus doesn't look much like someone you would expect to be able to do all that Luke's claiming him to, he's able to do. And that's, that's part of the issue. If we're talking superheroes, Jesus doesn't look much like a superhero, at least not the ones that we're used to, even if you just think about his birth. And now we're in Luke chapter 2. And Luke helps us see the problem because he tells the story of Jesus' birth in a way where he compares and contrasts him with someone named Caesar Augustus, who was the most powerful person in the world in those days. And what makes this comparison so compelling in Luke is that Caesar Augustus was making all these claims about himself that we just described Luke making about Jesus. Caesar Augustus was making these claims about him, him being Lord, the Son of God even. There were coins with his name on it, Son of God. He, he was describing himself as the solution to the problems of the entire world. And so at the time, at that point in time, Luke's writing, if you did compare and contrast Jesus and Caesar Augustus, it would have totally looked like Caesar Augustus was the more powerful one, even in how Jesus's birth plays out. For example, you read the story in Luke 2, and it's Caesar Augustus and his greed, actually, that forced Jesus's parents to go to Bethlehem. And yet Luke shows us in this story, you remember, that behind the scenes, what is really happening is that god is using caesar augustus to accomplish the plan that he made before time began it's it's like kind of the rest of the story luke is giving us you you thought this was the story no let me show you the rest of the story because jesus had to be born in bethlehem because david was born in bethlehem this is an old testament promise and what is the significance why did jesus have to be born where david was The reason is to demonstrate that what is happening with Jesus is is that God is going back to where it all began and starting over. He is going to do with Jesus what he promised David, just like the angel said he would in in chapter 1. It's a way of God basically saying that he is hitting the reset button. It's almost like Jesus is replaying the story the right way. So yeah, you may wonder as you look at Jesus, because he doesn't always look powerful, especially as Caesar does what Caesar does. And we recognize that. Of course, we're not living in a fairy tale world. And so on the surface, it might look like Caesar is the one who is more powerful, sure. But just a little more information. You get the backstory, and you realize that even without Caesar knowing it, Caesar is doing exactly what God wants him to do, to enable Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament, just like Luke said at the beginning he was coming to do. That's the point of this book. It's like Luke is telling all these stories and he's saying, it's happening. It is really happening. Everything we read about, it's happening just the way God said it would. And then Luke cements that in if we, if we keep going. After saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and that Jesus is the savior of the world, and the son of David, and the promised king, and putting an exclamation point on that with this comparison to Caesar, he introduces two witnesses. I'm just giving you a quick overview, and this is verse 22 and following of chapter 2. And here it's almost like a lawyer, really. Having made an opening argument, Luke is calling in two witnesses. And again, this is Luke 2, 22 to 38, where he brings in Simeon and Anna, To confirm what he just said and he starts doing a lot of work in this story to show us that we can trust them and then they both prophesy in other words they speak for god and what do they say simeon and anna both say when we look at jesus we're looking at the fulfillment of the prophecies we read about in the old testament and simeon even helps us he points out isaiah in particular he's like look if you want to understand jesus read isaiah especially chapters 40 and following And then Anna, she steps up after Simeon talks about Jesus being rejected by Israel and assures us that even though he's going to be rejected by Israel, that doesn't mean God's plans have changed. She says he is going to be the one who redeems Jerusalem. And I I keep saying this because I don't think people always understand what Christianity is saying about Jesus. That's why we're going over this. We are saying... Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all these amazing prophecies. And that is a big deal because that means Jesus and what happened to Jesus is the solution to the problems of the entire world. The entire world. You know, we're even so man-centered. Sometimes we only think of Jesus as the solution to our problems as, as humans. But he's more than that. What God's doing through Jesus is the solution to the problems of the actual universe that we see in creation. And, you know, if we have any question about that, if we wonder about Jesus and his interpretation of the Old Testament, like maybe, okay, this is what he said about himself, but did he really understand the Old Testament accurately? Luke shows us in the last story at the end of chapter 2, Jesus as a young boy in the temple. And he's showing us that at age 12, Jesus already understands the Bible better than the greatest minds in Jerusalem. He is the one giving them the answers. And so, if we have any question about Jesus going forward at the end of this introduction, chapters one and two, we should know it's not going to be because of the problems with Jesus and his understanding of the Old Testament. It's going to be because we don't really appreciate who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, he knows the Bible, he understands the Bible. He's the Son of God. And the thing is, Jesus knew that at age 12. He knew who he was, and he knew what he was doing, and he knew what was important when even his own parents, Mary and Joseph, didn't. They were confused. But Luke wants to show us they shouldn't have been confused. And we know that because that's what Jesus tells them. You remember the end of that story? It's been a while. Verse 48, chapter 2. What does Jesus say? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Which almost sounds like a rebuke, because I kind of think it is. Jesus is saying, why are you so worried? Because you should have known. You should have known. And yet how should they have known? That's an important question, because that's Luke's whole point. That's gonna be the point of the whole book. They should have known because the Bible says. That's how Jesus knew. The Bible says these events What was happening with Jesus are the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That is the introduction. That is Luke chapter 1 and 2. And Luke wants to convince you of it. He wants you to be certain. That is why he's writing. So now Luke 3 and 4, the next section. Luke is beginning to show us how. In other words, he is beginning, he's introduced his gospel. This is what I'm doing now he's beginning to prove how these events fulfill the old testament and he begins with john john the baptist and what i want to do over the next couple weeks actually is show you why this is verses 1 to 20 of chapter 3 and this is going to be like one sermon over three weeks so hold on but what we're going to look at what i think is important for you to understand is why does Luke bring up John as a key part of his argument or case that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Because that's why this is here, you understand? Are you following? I I mean, you can't just read this story that we're about to look at as, it tells me a lot of interesting information about John, and that's kind of neat that John was there. Because no, this story is here doing something. It's here even located where it is located in the Gospel of Luke for a reason. And Luke has already told us what he's intending to do. He is intending to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so, how does this story help us understand that? To understand how, you have to begin by understanding how important John the Baptist is, because there's a setup. The key to this whole passage is verses 15 to 17. That, that is the key insight. Verses 15 to 17. But to feel the, and, and boy, that insight, you're going to have to actually, it's so exciting. You're going to have to hold on to it until we get into Acts. Because that, verses 15 to 17, become really important to the whole argument Luke makes in Acts. So this is, the Bible's awesome. But, To understand verses 15 to 17, uh, you have to understand how important John the Baptist is first. And to understand how how important John the Baptist is, you have to understand a little context. One, historical context, and two, biblical context. So if you like outlines, those are like the two points. First, the historical context. Luke says, verse one, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which means we have fast forwarded from the last chapter. Because who was emperor when Jesus was born? I actually already said it a little earlier. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, different different people, but both emperors. And so time-wise, we've come a long way from the end of chapter 2. But even though we had some pretty awesome moments in chapters 1 and 2 with, like, an angel showing up at the temple, a virgin conceiving and giving birth, prophecies being made, you know what else has happened in all those years? Not much else, really. Because while some of the names have changed, and some of the rulers as well, the situation for Israel really hasn't. Israel is still in exile. There is still a Roman Caesar ruling the world, and more importantly, ruling Israel. Luke says Pontius Pilate is now governor of Judea. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, which again is a switch as well, but not really a good one. Because you remember how John the Baptist's birth, at John the Baptist's birth, Herod was king. But he died, and then one of Herod's sons took over Judea for a while. But Caesar didn't like him, and so he kicked him out and put Roman governors in charge of Judea instead. But apparently, he left some of Herod's other sons in charge of other parts of Israel. You see how it says, And Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, next, middle of verse 1. Pilate, this Roman governor, is over Judea, and Herod, not an Israelite either, he's an idiomian, meaning basically a descendant of Esau, was a tetrarch of Galilee. And tetrarch's a funny word, I know, but... Imagine a state or a province divided up into four parts. And a tetrarch is a ruler of a fourth part of a state or a province. That's what it means. And then it says his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and someone named Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And so these are all areas either just right there in Israel or right around Israel And all those names, one after another like that, are just reminders that Israel is still pretty much in the same spot they've always been. In fact, there's not a place in Israel, and there's not even a place around Israel, where there is anyone from Israel who's actually Jewish who is ruling over any part politically. Not even a tetrarch, not even someone who's ruling over only a fourth of a province. That is the political situation. And the religious situation wasn't much better either. Verse 2, Luke says what he's about to describe takes place during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And now technically, there's only one high priest in Israel. And yet here Luke mentions two. He says Annas and Caiaphas. But he's not getting it wrong, obviously, because Annas had been high priest. He was appointed high priest by Rome in uh, right around 6 AD by Quirinius. You remember that guy from Luke 2. So it's possible he was high priest when Jesus was there in the temple at age 12, actually. But the thing is, that's not the normal biblical way to become a high priest. In other words, he did not get this position the way he should have gotten it. And so he's the first high priest, actually, Annas, serving as high priest after Rome had fully taken over Jerusalem, you know, appointing its own governor and all. And so he is a fitting symbol of the exile, actually, because it's like with Annas, Rome is here saying, okay, you're cute. You can have this little region. That's fine, but we're going to tell you how to have your religion. And so, like, here's your priest. We'll decide. Here's Annas. And he was not a good person either. In fact, eventually, even Rome saw that he was so bad, they took him out of being high priest. But somehow, he was able to still remain influential. And so, over the next 50 or 60 years through Jesus' lifetime, he still had a a part to play. His sons and his son-in-laws were high priests after him. So he was right there in the middle of it. And his son-in-law, his name was Caiaphas. That's the other person mentioned here. And he became high priest around 10 AD, and he served all the way to 36 AD. So he's the longest-serving high priest in this era. And he and his father-in-law were able to use this position to make themselves rich. That seems to be their thing, and that's going to be important later on in the Gospel of Luke, so hold on to it. But right now, what's important for you to understand is that Israel politically and Israel spiritually is in trouble as they're being ruled by pagans, and their spiritual leaders are even being chosen for them, and they are corrupt. They are still in exile, which is a big deal if you know the story of the Bible not just for them it's a big deal for us because if you read the old testament prophets it's kind of like save israel save the world after israel sinned god sent israel into exile And he raised up all these prophets as they were in exile who made all these promises to them about how there's this day coming where God's going to fix all the problems of the world and his enemies are going to be judged and his people are going to be rescued and death is going to be defeated and the world is going to be transformed. And it seems like it's all going to happen as Israel gets out of exile. And yet that's the problem at the beginning of Luke because it's been hundreds and hundreds of years since the end of the Old Testament and Israel is in as bad a situation as they've ever been. They're in exile. Politically and spiritually, they are in trouble. That is number one, the historical context for John. But while they're in exile, what happens? Luke tells us the word of God comes to John the Baptist. And this is huge. We're getting to why this is such a big... The Bible's amazing, but you've got to work at it. We're getting to why this is such a big moment, why John is so important. And this is second, the Old Testament context for John the Baptist. And again, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his uh, brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And in my mind, I put that last phrase in bold print because it's a very specific way of talking, actually. The word coming to someone. Because it makes it sound like the word is what? When you read that. It makes it sound like the word is a person because people normally come. Words don't usually come. Unless what? Unless you're reading the Old Testament where that is a very common way of speaking specifically about what happens to the prophets. In fact, that's pretty much the way Isaiah starts, and it's very similar to how Jeremiah starts, and Hosea as well, and a lot of the Old Testament prophets. So it's been about 400 years of silence. The word hasn't come to anyone all those years. It's been like a famine of God's word, and Israel is suffering. When suddenly God raises up John as a prophet, and not just any kind of prophet, an Old Testament kind of prophet. Think Isaiah. Think Jeremiah. Think Jeremiah. Luke says, in the wilderness, end of verse 2, beginning of verse 3, and that's important. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan. And those words, wilderness and Jordan, are significant because they're Luke's ways, uh, it's his way of helping us. Those are phrases that help fill in the picture of what's going on. It's like, get specific, because there are no throwaway words in the Bible, And so the fact that Luke adds that John was in the wilderness and going into the region around the Jordan is not accidental. Because as Luke's highlighting here that, yes, John is a prophet, an Isaiah-like prophet, a Jeremiah-like prophet, he's wanting to make clear that he's actually even bigger. That's the twist. At least bigger in terms of timing. And these terms, wilderness and Jordan, are like hints for you as you read the Bible because the wilderness and the Jordan were not any places in Israel's history. And this is part of the fun of reading the Bible, actually. Seeing words like this and trying to figure out what's going on. And to figure out what's going on, you need to remember that Israel is a nation, right? And it's a nation with a long history. And it's a history that they thought was very significant and that they did a lot of work remembering. And so places in Israel had meaning and doing things at certain places had a certain significance. It's kind of like here in America, say how if I wanted to start a new political party, and I definitely don't, Uh, but if I did, and I went to Boston and I did my speech while dumping tea into the Boston Harbor, imagine that would probably say something for a lot of people. It would be weird, I know, and you'd be like, I'm not sure exactly what this guy is trying to say, But I do know he's definitely trying to make some kind of point because of where it's located and what that location means in our history as a nation, which is sort of what's happening with John, I'm saying, only it's clearer Because Israel is in exile, and they're wanting to get out of exile. That's the setting. And John is a prophet who is in the wilderness, right around the Jordan. And wilderness is a big biblical theme. That has to do with the exile and the land and God's promises to Israel. So if you remember the first time Israel was in the wilderness, it was after they were rescued from Egypt and before they went into the promised land. And they were there for a long time because as a judgment for their lack of faith in God. And then later in the Old Testament, after they had gotten into the promised land and been there for a while, they were disobedient and they were kicked out of the land. They were sent into exile. And prophets like Hosea, they use the image to describe that time of exile as Israel being sent back into the wilderness. So they came out of the wilderness into the promised land, and then after sinning in the promised land, they were sent back into the wilderness as a judgment. And so it's like a picture, the wilderness, of what exile is like. It's like being in the wilderness. And then, you know, when the prophets describe the return from exile, Israel getting out of exile, the time when God keeps his promises, they describe the path back as starting in the wilderness. This is the place where things would start to change. Isaiah 35, verse 8. Isaiah 35 is very key to understanding Luke 3. But Isaiah chapter 35, uh, Isaiah writes, And a highway shall be there. He's talking about this time in the future when God rescues the world. And he says, a highway shall be there. Where? Where's there? Isaiah 35, 6, the wilderness. So there's going to be a highway in the wilderness, and it shall be called the way of holiness. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And the point is, you have to have this Old Testament background in your mind as you think about John. We want to understand these stories as they were originally intended. To understand that you can't just have a dictionary competence. You have to have more like an encyclopedic competence. You have to understand these pictures. Because it's like, look, how do we know Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Luke says, you got to look with me at John. Because the Bible told us. The Bible told us there's a time coming when the exile is going to be ended. And that once the exile is ended, it's going to get good for... The world, and God is going to provide this total and complete salvation, and you know where it tells us that all those end time events are going to begin? Isaiah says they're going to begin back where everything started for Israel in the first place, back there in the wilderness. And actually, you know, even Hosea, who talked about exile being like Israel being sent back into the wilderness, goes on and says in chapter 2, verse 14, if you ever want to look it up, That God will meet Israel in the wilderness and woo her back from the wilderness. And so at the start of chapter 3, it's like, yeah, it's bad for Israel. It's bad. But what does the Old Testament say is going to happen? It says salvation is going to begin in the wilderness. Which means when John shows up in the wilderness, what do we know? We know that Israel is on the brink of the fulfillment of some of the biggest and most significant Old Testament promises ever. In other words, this is the moment the Bible tells us we've been waiting for. And in case we somehow miss that in verses 1, 2, and 3, in the next couple of verses, verses 4 and 5, Luke adds some important Old Testament information to help us understand that significance exactly. First, he says, and he went into the... The region, all the region around the Jordan, which they had to cross to enter the promised land the first time, you remember, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you might uh, bold print that word repentance because that is a big word, especially in this context. Because the reason Israel was sent into exile, into the wilderness in the first place, was because they would not repent. That's important to know. And you can check that out. In Isaiah chapter 1, or even especially Amos chapter 4, where God is like, I did this, I did this, I did this, and yet you would not return to me. You would not repent. And so that's why they were sent into exile. It's because God was being faithful to the covenant he made with them. At the beginning, God explained the the nature of his relationship with Israel. And maybe you remember how he said, If you disobey, you will be cursed. And the ultimate curse is that you're going to be sent into exile. And so for a long time, he sent prophets to make clear that after that happened, there would be a way out of exile. God would be gracious. There would be a way out of exile, but that way would be true national repentance. If you flip back to Joel, or actually first to Deuteronomy, because it all starts way back there. I mean, the plan is there. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And so this is before, you have to understand, this is before Israel even entered the land. They're in the wilderness, on the edge of the Jordan, actually. And you know what Moses says to them? So he's already explained the covenant requirements, the blessings and the curses. And he knows they're going to end up disobeying and experiencing the curses. And so he knows they're going to be sent into exile. And so listen to what he says to them, Deuteronomy 30, 1 and 2. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, that's exile, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. And you know what that is? That's repentance. In other words, Moses is saying, after you sinned and after you've been sent into exile, you need to remember the covenant and return to God and obey. That's repentance, basically. And what is going to happen then? Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. "'Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes "'and have compassion on you, "'and he will gather you again from all the peoples "'where the Lord your God has scattered you.' If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Remember that, because that's going to be really important later. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you may live. And what's that? That is the end of exile. And so before it even starts, really, God tells Israel, the way back is through repentance. And as you keep reading your Bible, you find the prophets come and keep singing that same song. You realize that the minor prophets, major prophets, really what they're doing is they're preaching Deuteronomy. And Joel, for example, Joel chapter two, Joel's warning them about Israel, about this day of the Lord that's coming, the wrath of God. And yet he says, look, you don't have to experience the wrath of God If what? Joel 2.12. Listen to this. Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. In other words, you don't have to experience this if only you will repent. And then you fast forward down to verse 18, Joel 2, verse 18, and you see what God's going to do for Israel when Israel repents. It says... Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. And you go down to Joel 2, verse 28, and he's pouring out his spirit on Israel. And there's this great salvation for Israel and ultimately for the entire world. And yet what happens, of course, if we look at the story of Israel up to this point with John, is that God's been faithful to his promise to bring them back to the land from which they were sent into exile. He said he would send them into exile for their sin, and then he would bring them back after 70 years, and he brought them back after 70 years. He did exactly what he said he would do, and yet you know what was missing? What was missing was that Israel didn't repent. They didn't really repent. There wasn't any nationwide turning back to God, really, and you can read the end of Nehemiah for that. Malachi as well, but Ezra and Nehemiah, that's kind of the point of those those books, if you remember the story. It starts well, God sends these great leaders, there seems to be a revival, and yet by the end of Nehemiah, it's clear it wasn't real, nothing stuck. And of course, that's the reason they built the temple, and they didn't see the presence of God the way they had in Leviticus. That's the reason they hadn't experienced the fulfillment of all these promises of restoration and glory that we read about in the prophets. And so here's John. You sticking with me at least a little? Back in Luke, who is the next big prophet in this Old Testament line of prophets. And it's like, here's John. And after all these years, Israel is now finally standing on the brink to the fulfillment of these amazing promises. They're at the Jordan again, the way God said they, where God said they would come. And John is saying, you know what needs to happen for us to enter? The same thing the Bible's always been saying needs to happen. I mean, John is just saying what the prophet said. We need repentance. We need to repent. And I don't know, I hope you're following, but again, Luke's making an argument. It's how can you be certain about Jesus and what happened? And Luke's like, okay, let's go back to the Old Testament and look at the script. What needed to happen for Israel to get out of exile? Where does it start? It starts with the prophet getting them ready. And that's part of why Luke describes what John was doing as a baptism of repentance, actually. Verse 3, John says, a, a, a baptism of, he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And that word baptism takes this to a whole nother level, actually. And it's easy to miss because when we read baptism, we think our baptism. But John's baptism was different than the one that we do nowadays. And one way we know it's different is because later in the book of Acts, we'll see Paul talks about John's baptism and then Christian baptism, because they're different. And they're different because John's baptism was preparatory. He was coming before Jesus, so he's getting people ready for Jesus as the Messiah. And this was a shocking way to do it, because normally Jews didn't get baptized. You understand? So there was maybe some washing of their hands that they might do and their feet, but those were the kinds of things you had to do over and over again. And this, what John's doing, was a one-time thing in a river, and Jews didn't do that. And one reason they didn't do that was because that is what you did if you weren't a Jew and you wanted to become one normally. The people who would have gotten baptized normally were Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew by birth and you wanted to become a Jew, you had to get baptized which would have made John's baptism incredibly offensive, because basically John is standing out there in the wilderness as a prophet of God, speaking to the nation of Israel, as they're flooding out to see him, anticipating the coming of the Messiah, and this great return from exile that they've been reading about in the scriptures, and John is standing there telling them, unless they're willing to repent so thoroughly, that they would come before God like a Gentile, not trusting in their nationality, not trusting in their righteousness, but completely depending on God's mercy, they couldn't be forgiven of their sins and again if you look down verse 4 Luke quickly wants to make clear why is John standing there saying that because that was what God said was supposed to happen if people have been paying attention he quotes as it's written in the books of the words of Isaiah the prophet and that's sort of different for Luke actually uh, because you'll notice as we read the rest of this gospel he doesn't do that a lot he quotes the Old Testament a lot But he doesn't usually give a reference. I think this is the last time in Luke that he gives a reference. He normally just does these echoes and expects you to figure it out. But here he wants to emphasize, this is exactly what the scripture said was going to happen. You can look it up. This is what Isaiah was talking about when he wrote about the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is that. And what is that? How would you understand that if you were reading the Bible on your own? What would you have to do? you would have to go back to Isaiah chapter 40. <laughs> That's where it comes from. And we do, we go back there and we see the context there is similar because in Isaiah 1 to 39, Israel sent into exile. You remember the story? And then what? Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so what's that? That's the end of exile. In other words, it's going to be bad, but comfort my people because it's not always going to be bad. There's going to be peace and forgiveness. And how do we know that's going to happen? What is going to be the signal that that's starting to take place? Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness. And you read that, and it's almost like in a movie after some sort of apocalyptic event, and everything is just devastated, and you think it's all done, and you see this absolutely barren land and smoke coming up from the ground, wilderness, And then God says, Comfort my people. After 39 chapters filled with warnings of judgment, Isaiah 40, God begins to talk about salvation. I'm about to act. I'm about to save. And where does that salvation begin? It's going to begin with this voice crying in the wilderness. And what does that voice say? Prepare the way of the Lord. And who's the Lord? This is awesome. The Lord is God. Isaiah is saying, God is coming. And so this is big, and you know, the picture behind the way he describes all this, God coming and the voice crying, prepare the way of the Lord, is that of a king. So Isaiah's saying, you're supposed to picture salvation happening for Israel when God comes as king. Because it was normal in those days when a king would go somewhere to receive a royal welcome, and it still is. Joe Biden comes to Fullerton, something's going to happen. But back then, sometimes before a king would visit a certain place, the people who lived in that city would get... Ready for his visit by preparing a really good road that the king could use to enter the city with all the obstacles removed. And obviously, especially designed so that people could welcome him as he entered. And to make sure that the road was ready, the king would send a messenger on ahead to announce that he was coming, which is what Isaiah says is going to happen before God comes to rescue his people. And it's what Luke is saying John is doing out there in the wilderness. He's crying, The king is coming. The king is coming. God is coming. God is coming. And he's coming to act in a world-changing way. Verses five and six: Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And what is that? I know you're working. I'm going long today, but thanks for sticking with me because this is we have to see at least this. That is a complete reversal. <laughs> This used to be a valley, but now it's filled. This used to be a mountain, but now it's flat. This used to be crooked, but now it's straight. This used to be a rough place to walk, but now it's smooth. In other words, God is acting in this world to deal with the obstacles to him coming and establishing his kingdom. And coming back to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 3, verse 6, what is going to happen when he does? He says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that's not just Israel. That's everyone. Everyone is going to see The salvation of god and so if you're wondering can i be sure that jesus is the fulfillment of the old testament luke says let's start by looking at john because john is really really important and to understand why first look at the historical context israel is in exile that's the problem when second god's word comes to john just like the old testament said it would think about the old testament background for this Israel standing on the brink of all these promises being fulfilled like they did back in the day when they were waiting to go into the promised land, just like the Old Testament said they would. And John is calling them to repent, and he's announcing that God is acting to provide this great salvation they've been longing for through Jesus, just like the Old Testament said he would. And what happened? This is going to be verses 7 through 14, and we're going to have to get to that next week. But real quickly, let me tell you what happened. What happened, surprise, surprise, is just what the Old Testament said would happen. Because it looks like there's this massive revival as John confronts the people and calls them to repent, and they repent. Which means as we look at John's ministry, what do we see? We see clearly he is the fulfillment about this great Old Testament prophet who would come before the Messiah. And here's the thing. That's actually just the setup. (laughs) Because here's the part that's going to be important. What does this great Old Testament prophet who was supposed to come before the Messiah say about how we can know who the Messiah is? Remember that for next week because that's verses 15 through 17. But if you're wanting something to take home, here's the preview John is huge, and John's ministry is world changing. And yet John's whole ministry exists to make clear that the one coming after him is much, much greater than he is. In other words, just when you thought it couldn't get better and it couldn't get bigger, it does. And his name is Jesus. The good news is that God really has acted in this world to fulfill his plan of reversing the curse. And fixing everything that's wrong with the world. And he's done it through Jesus. That's our message. It's not a philosophy. It's not just an idea. It's not just be religious. It is about what God has done to change the history of the universe. Through Jesus. And you can count on it. And and Luke's going to say, you need to count on it. Because actually, your entire eternal future depends on it let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. This book is amazing. And uh, even as we read it and study it, it's bigger and better than us. It's so clearly your, your word. It's like we're little children trying to figure out these massive things that you have done and that you have spoken. And so we thank you for the privilege of being a church. And it is work, but we thank you that we're not doing this work on our own. We have the Spirit of God in us, helping us to understand what you've said. And we thank you that what you've made clear is that you have a plan and that Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. And that plan involves a complete and total salvation, and we long for it. We long for you to return, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.